Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now it happened, now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent counselors to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. And when they told it to David, he said to he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated, and the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rehob, and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. The remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, If the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for us, then I will come to help you. Be strong, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the, to the battle against the Aramaeans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had at ease or sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. And they came to Halem and Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak, the commander of the army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So again, to start with a little bit of review, this is the height of David's kingdom. He has, he has probably been in power about 20 years at this point. So this is the middle, chronologically, of his rule. And, um, and so, you know, this is, this is the high watermark. This is as good as it gets for David as far as the peace of the land, as far as the tribes being together, as far as the enemies being subdued, um, this is it. But if you look ahead to chapter 11, we begin to see that the sins of David are recorded. Um, he, remember last time in, with Mephibosheth, he, he took care of Jonathan's son, the, the son who was lame in his feet, and uh, because he was the... the the sole remainder of the household of Jonathan. And David had made a covenant with Jonathan, and he was fulfilling that covenant in Mephibosheth. And you remember the reaction of Mephibosheth to David's loving kindness, to David's mercy to him. He's very humble. He's very humble. He's very humble. He receives it, and, um, and he commits himself to David and sits at David's table. Now, on to chapter 10. I'm sorry, my children are distracting me this evening from when I was reading till now, so please pay attention and sit still. Thank you. So now, the, the Ammonites is um, it's another one of these people groups that surrounds Israel, and they have a change of ruler. Right, Nahash dies, and Hanun, his son, takes over. There, there is a little bit going on here that's hard to tell if you don't know the Hebrew. Nahash means serpent, and Hanun means to be gracious. So we see a contrast even in the names of the father and the son here. Um, but we have, to, we have to turn back and remind ourselves, we have to go back to 1 Samuel 11 and remind ourselves of the other time that Nahash was doing his deeds around Israel. Um, this is when Saul was de- dealing with the Ammonites. And so chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make a covenant with, uh, I will make a covenant with you. I will make it with you on this condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. So he is a serpent, isn't he? His, the terms of his contracts are uh, not favorable to those who would, uh, who would sign them. Although I guess he believes he's sparing their lives by just gouging out their eyes. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. So if there's no one who's going to deliver us, then, then it's a good deal. We'll take it. And so, um, then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul, and this is early on in Saul's reign. This is good Saul. Right? This is before bad Saul. 
Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. It's a good way to stir up an army. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Right? That, that's really the height of Saul's reign, is when, when it, it, it isn't about him and about his glory, and he's deferring. And th- there were men who wanted to kill, kill the men who didn't support Saul, and Saul's like, No. No, the Lord has done this work of deliverance. So that's Nahash. And it's his son now that's reigning in Israel. Note back in 2 Samuel 10, not in Israel, in in Ammon. Note in in verse 2, Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Uh, we don't know what that points to. We don't know. There's nothing in our text. There's nothing in Scripture that, that tells us how Nahash was kind to David. Um, we just don't know what's going on there. But at some point, David had found, like he found refuge with the Philistines, like he had found refuge um, when escaping Saul, perhaps Nahash had uh, protected him at some point. But some kindness was shown by David to Nahash. And that motivates David now to, um, to send blessings to Nahash's son. And we have to begin thinking here of the contrast between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 9, David wants to share his loving kindness. He wants to share his love uh, with somebody in the household of Jonathan. And so he goes to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth graciously is he's fearful at first, knowing that the king could be just trying to eradicate competitors, but then he also said, humbles himself before David. Now, in Hanun, we get a different reaction to the kindness of David, and that's one to reject it and spurn the, the kindness of the king. And so, um, who, of course, it's, it's um, Hanun is, is new in his reign, and so when, uh, when a man is new in a position, his counselors have extra weight, 
have extra ability to push him around in certain directions, right? And so the princes of the Ammonites said to their Lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent counselors to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? And so the counselors are saying to him, he's sending spies. He's sending spies. This is not what it seems to be. This is not what it looks like. He is not sending uh, men to console you in your grief. And so what does Hanun do? He takes David's servants. He shaves off half of their beards. Front half or, I don't know. It would have to be this half, right? (laughs) whatever it was, it was meant to look uh, terrible. And so he shaves off half their beards, he cuts their garments to the middle of their hips um, to humiliate them in another way and sends them away. Uh, One of the things that through time and even up until this day is you don't mess with ambassadors of countries. Right? You just don't mess with ambassadors. Ambassadors are to be treated as if you're dealing with the whole country. Right? So when the ambassadors of David are mistreated, they are mistreating the whole country of Israel. And not only are they mistreated, they're humiliated. So this is, in a sense, an act of war. Um, they're humiliated. Hanun is, is, is mocking them. And then... Uh, and they go back, uh, sent away from this man, and it's told to David, and it says the men were greatly humiliated. Greatly humiliated because they were there to represent Israel. They were there to represent Israel's God, and they were sent away um, having been humiliated. And the king says, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. I like that he doesn't tell them to shave the other half off. Right? He says, let the rest grow back in. So there's something about beards, right? There's power in those beards. Um, no. No, there, there is a, it is funny today that in an effeminate age, hipsters grow beards. And it's, it's contradiction. Right? It's a contradiction. It's a manly activity that's on the face of a coward. Right? So, but, so this is my you know, semiotic of, of beards, of facial hair. Um, anyway, there's more I could say on that. Um, does not nature even tell us that it is shameful for a man to have long hair? Does that verse of Scripture mean anything? Right? There is a tie between our hair and our sexuality. And Scripture makes it. I'm not making that up. Okay. But here, they're, they're told to wait. Um, they're humiliated. They wait in Jericho. And then the sons of Ammon are like, uh-oh. We just made ourselves odious in the sight of King David. We stink before King David. And so they start hiring mercenaries. Right? They hire mercenaries from... The Aramans of Beth Rahab, the Aramans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers. The king of Makkah throws in 1,000 men. And the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David hears of that, 
he says, okay, um, that's aggressive. You will meet with my army. And he sends Joab and all the mighty men. And they draw up in battle array. The sons of Ammon come out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city while the Aramaeans of Zobah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the field. And, and Job realizes that he's surrounded. He's got men behind him in the Aramaeans and he's got the Ammonites ahead of him. And so he splits his forces and his brother takes half the force and... And then he says this, if the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to you. Right? Wherever the heat of the battle is most pitched, then we'll come to each other's aid. But nonetheless, we've got our own jobs to do. And then this. And remember, this is Joab. What do we know about Joab? What? Impulsive? Saul's um, commander of the armies, right? And he had, um, I mean, we go back, right, not too far back, and Joab was a murderer, right? He killed Abner. Joab murders Abner basically in cold blood. So this is Joab. And so Joab is sitting there in the middle of these, this, this battlefield and he's calling his brother to lead half the troops. And then he says, but be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. Those are good words, right? Does God ever bring good words out of the mouths of pagans? Out of thugs? Out of sodomites? Yeah, He does. And here's an example of that, of God bringing these words of truth out of this, this man <clears throat> who had proven himself to be a man of, of um, bloodshed. And that will only become more um, convincing as we follow Joab and David. And um, <clears throat> one of the points that's made in this passage about this battle is this in the commentary I was reading, and I thought it was very helpful. Um, the sons of Ammon are scrambling, they're hiring mercenaries, they come out into the field, and so then Israel gets to take them on. And um, this is what the commentary says, this is one of the ways that God brings good out of evil. The wicked attack the godly, but that is simply God's way of bringing the wicked out onto the battlefield, where he can destroy them. And so... Um, and then the, it goes on, when enemies attack the church or enemies in the church attack the faithful, it may be that God is simply bringing them out of the dark recesses and into the open so that they can be more easily and more dramatically thrashed. Right? So the rising up of enemies is not always a defeat for the, the people of God. Sometimes the rising up of the enemies of God is because God wants to very publicly destroy them 
and thrash them. Right? And so in, in the midst of, of theological battle, that could be the case. In the midst of, of the battle of the nations where God has given authority, that could be the case as well. So, um, again, these words of, of Joab, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's follow through in the, in the narrative here. And Joab defeats the Aramans, they become slaves, or at least they become tributaries of the king. And then we have to skip to an, the next chapter to find out what, how this concludes, because it doesn't conclude. And so if you go to chapter 11, verse 1, we read this, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And then skipping forward to chapter 12, verse 26, again we come back to the Ammonites. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to save it and said, I have fought against Rabbah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it or I will capture the city myself and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. There's really nothing that needs to be said about that. The Ammonites are wicked sinners and despicable and odious in the sight of God and met the destruction that God had set out for them. Right? We always seem to have to make apologies for God's covenant people doing what he's commanded them to do, which was to remove the inhabitants of the land from the land that he was giving to them. And that is exactly, David is being obedient here. And yet it's very hard for our modern sensibilities and sense of fairness to think that, that he would do so in such a way that's described there. And yet this is the sins of Ammon being punished. Don't forget that side of it. This is their sins, their willful sins, their sins against God and His people that are being dealt with in that punishment. So that's how it ends, right? David takes the crown of their king and puts it on his own head and, um, and uh, they are vanquished, a vanquished enemy. So how do we apply this passage? couple things. I've got some. You might want to share some as well. The first is this. Is it all, this is the contrast between chapters 9 and chapter and 10. Chapters 9 and 10. Is it always easy to accept help or kindness from others? Do you find it easy to accept kindness from others? 
why is it hard to accept kindness from others? Why was it, Mephibosheth was, was, was willing to, but the son of Nahash, not so much. He was not willing to accept David's kindness. Why is it hard for us to accept the kindness of others? And I'll open up the floor if you want to answer that. Yeah, we, we're suspicious. We think there are hidden motives, that there's a string attached somewhere. No one, why would somebody be kind to me? You know? Our pride, absolutely. The pride of, of Hanun was stirred up by his princes. You know, don't be weak. Don't, don't show your weakness. Don't let David, you know. David, David's doing evil here, and so you, gotta, you need to show yourself strong. Don't accept this kindness. How else is it hard for you to accept kindness? You think you're going to have to pay it back, right? That's the strings that are attached, right? We, we think that um, if, somebody gives, if somebody is kind to us, then at some point they're going to call on their kindness back. And we do that to other people too. Don't you remember the time when so and so and I lent you my car and da 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 and you know, turn around is fair play now, right? We always put, we don't do any, we, we do very few things out of the, the kindness of our hearts and simply to store our treasure in heaven and glorify God. We, we like to have those strings attached. Um, how else is it hard to accept kindness? What does accepting kindness mean? means you failed, or it means you're weak, or it means something uh, along those lines, and it's very hard for us in our pride to admit we're weak or need help. That's perhaps the hardest thing for, for most of us, right? And then I, I think the other big thing is we feel obligated to repay. And so we're like, ah, I'd rather suffer without than be helped and have to repay, Right? But you contrast Mephibosheth and Hanan. Mephibosheth humbled himself. I'm a dead dog. Why are you even thinking about me? I'm a dead dog. And, um, and what he does in that, so he humbles himself and then he exalts other. He exalts the graciousness of King David. Whereas Hanan is the very opposite. He, he humbles others. He humbles these ambassadors and exalts himself. Right? Oh, I'll show them. I'm in a position of strength. I don't need, I don't need professional grievers to come help me grieve the death of my father who is named Serpent. <laughs> right? And this is just the way of our Lord, isn't it? Jesus humbled himself in order for you to be exalted. Jesus emptied himself in, in order for you to be filled up with all the fullness of God. Um, <clears throat> that's the way of our Savior. So, humble yourself, uh, serve others, and exalt others, and then um, in due time you're exalted in the Lord's time. Um, some, of the, some of the places where where it's easy, where we have opportunity to, um, to exalt others, you know, um, in child rearing, 
in raising children, there are countless times where your children are in a weak position and you have to help them. And you'll begin to see them rejecting it. You'll begin to see them wanting to be independent of you and not receive it and admit their weakness and whatnot. That's going to happen. Employers and employees face the same thing. Elders and members of a church, um, similar thing. Um, I've been in counseling sessions as a pastor where um, you're genuinely trying to help somebody overcome their sin and they just can't get over the fact that you've just, you've just called them a sinner, basically. And it's like you want to say, no, no, but we're all in the same boat. It's just God has obligated me to have to talk about these things out loud and not pass them over, right? And so um, uh, so so there are further applications that come out of that. Make it so that you can accept help and kindness from others. Check your pride, right? Check your pride and make it so that you can accept help And don't think that they're giving you help because they want to dominate you or put you in their obligation. That should not be the case. And if it does come around to be that way, that's their sin, not yours. Um, Let's see. Other applications of this text. This chapter serves as a, as a prelude to chapter 11. And of course, chapter 11 is when David lusts with his eyes and then um, his lusts con- are conceived and he sins with Bathsheba. And I, you know, I think what the, the author of this, this book was trying to get across is... is here at one moment is David acting kindly and loyally, and then in another moment, there he is throwing kindness and loyalty to the winds. Think of, think of his kindness to Mephibosheth, his kindness to this, this pagan king, and then Uriah. No kindness at all. Nothing. David is controlled by his, his covenants and his memories. Remember with, with um, Jonathan, he remembers that he had made a covenant with Jonathan, and he remembers that, and he wants to fulfill it. And then in chapter 11, there's, there's King David being controlled by his, his glands, right, and his secrets, and not remembering the covenants he had made with the Lord to be faithful. And David, in one point here, Mephibosheth is is um, he is a a man with great needs who, without David's help, could have died. And so, one moment he's David is sparing and mourning life, and then in another moment he's trampling and destroying a life. And this is the double-mindedness of of men. We are double-minded, unstable in all of our ways. There is not a point where you can let your guard down and think that you have um, 
you have overcome all temptations. You have grown to the point where uh, you can't be overcome by the, the adultery and murder that David committed. Every one of you is, is capable, and this is depressing, but it's the reality, is capable of adultery and murder. And so you always have to be fighting your sin. You always have to be girding up your loins for this fight. You always have to be ready and sober-minded and ready for battle, right? But so many of us get lazy, and it's just profound that when, when it comes to David's sin in the next chapter, it says that David stayed at home rather than going out at the time when the kings fight. Unprepared. Unprepared. And he does great damage to his witness and the witness of Israel. This is the, this is the I guess, bipolar. This is the schizophrenia of sin. Right? It, it, um, one moment we're, we're doing what is right, the next moment we've given into temptation and doing the very opposite. Not just something different, but the very opposite of the kindness we just showed. And that is terrible wickedness that we have to be on guard for. Always be on guard. Another, another um, application of this is that phrase that, what do we make of the phrase that Joab says here? In verse 12, be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in His sight. May the Lord do what is good in His sight. Good place for Joab to go. That's what's going to happen. But what does that mean? May the Lord do what's good in His sight. Well, it could have meant that Joab and Israel is going to get their tails whooped. That's what it could have meant. Right? None of the specifics were given to Joab about what was coming. All he knew was that God is good, God is faithful to His promises, and God's will will be enacted. And so there's, there's a sense in which um, the, there's uncertainty in everything, Right? And yet, we're supposed to be confident. And so, this is Joab being confident in God's goodness and completely uncertain about what that means for him. Right? That's, that's where we have to live. Right? We, we, we're confident in the fact that God is good, but we, are, we have no idea what the outcomes are going to be. And we're always asking for God's blessings. And He may bring the hardest circumstances on us. And at the end of the day, what we have to say is, okay, God knew it was good and I didn't. I was not certain. Like God is certain. God knows the details. We know the, the major concept. And so what Joab is saying here is, is great. It's very helpful. May the Lord do what is good in His sight. More confident less certain is how we should be. And then there's another thing in this verse. 
Um, Calvin, John Calvin brings it out, and um, he says that the two, the two just causes of war are in verse 12. The two just causes of war, the good and common safety of the people and the honor of God, are the two reasons that we should ever go to war. The good and common safety of the people and the honor of God. And so, later in his commentary, well, it's a sermon from this passage, he says those two reasons are for the honor and worship of God and the safety of all the people, right? And so those, and, and those two are very much connected. And yet, um, there is so much unjust war that, uh, that, that is not based upon these two things. It's not based upon the safety of the people. It's based upon money, based upon conquest, whatever it may be. It's based upon the, the, just the pride and the reputation of the people. But he said, no, no, defend your people. That's just. When you are attacked, defend. Right? And for the honor of God, you don't go into battle. You don't go into battle in a way that makes you break the commandments of God. If you cannot go into it in good conscience before God, then it is not a, a battle worth fighting. Or it's sin for you to be engaged in that battle. And so that's, um, Calvin pulls that out of, out of the, um, let, our, let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of the people and for the cities of our God, Right? And so God and the cities, God and the people are mentioned in the statement. And so Calvin vamps on that for quite a bit in his sermon. And uh, I thought that was a very helpful application of this passage. Any other applications? Those are sort of the, the, the applications that I drew out of this passage. Anybody want to have, uh, have a word on this? Any thoughts? Any other por- portions of this stick out? This is a pivot point in the book of 2 Samuel. You know, from here we're going to see a lot of conflict. We're going to see a lot of David being rebuked and, and, um, and then Solomon and, and Amnon and Tamar come along. And the household of David is just one of, of one crisis after another. Absalom trying to take the kingdom from his father, Right? And so um, there is very much, very much uh, difficulty that comes out of the sin that David is committing here. And remember that when David commits that sin with Bathsheba, God says that he's going to rebuke David out in the full vision of everybody. And um, that is appropriate punishment for a king. Any thoughts? Anything else? Thinking the same thing that you already thought about, but um, along the lines of Adam, how it's clearly he's a bad leader, he's young. You know, a good leader would know how to accept kindness from another king and yet not have his, not feel like his strength is being threatened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all feel a, 
in a sense, attacked when people show us kindness because of that whole state, that whole feeling that we're weak or needy or need something. And we just, we really have to fight that. Hanun didn't, and we see the results of it, as people get killed because of that decision. Well, the stakes are less for us, but even still, when someone is kind to us, be humble. You are worse than you think you are. You need help. You need help. And let people help you. Let them love you. Let them show this kindness. Do you think David didn't... Uh, I, it's, it seems clear to me that David showed great kindness to Mephibosheth and wanted to show the same kindness to Hanun. And um, things would have gone better. Things escalated rather quickly when, uh, when the beards got shaved in half. Right? So yeah, I mean, humble, humble yourself to receive help. And, and I'm not talking about physical, financial help. There are so many other avenues you know, counsel. For some of us, it's hard to take counsel because it admits we lack knowledge. And that's a harder hit than accepting money, right? So um, there are many ways in which we will not, um, we will not accept help. Um, and it's just a sign of our immaturity. What else? Anything else? Yeah. I mean, his relationship to his to Saul is all kinds of forbearance. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, I think when it came to dealing with, with Joab and Abner, that it was a major failure of him not to, not to fire Joab immediately. At least, or if not, uh, give him the punishment that the law doled out for murderers. Right, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that is a question of wisdom, that is a question of maturity, and... Um, and God throws us into such, uh, such um, sudden and complicated situations that it becomes at times very hard to know whether we should act, whether we should forbear, whether we should um, sit back, or whether we should be aggressive. And um, that's, why, that's all why we have to be sober-minded and ready and know ourselves, right? Know the propensity of our heart. And just this, this idea of it's hard for me to accept kindness. Well, am I going to learn about myself so that when, when I'm in a more intense situation that I know exactly how I'm going to react and how I need to fight against that? Or am I just not going to examine myself at all? Right? So we, we have to pay attention. We have to study ourselves as much as we study um, our God, 
right? We have to know the, the um, tendencies of our hearts and not ignore them, not, <laughs> not uh, self-justify and make them into virtues, not stick our head in the ground and ignore them, but actually do the nasty stuff of self-examination. And, and the answer might be, well, yeah, you are a coward. Yeah, you are um, filled with lust. You are greedy, whatever it might be. And then respond accordingly. Begin to fight those sins. Um, yeah, David, David is complicated. His sins are large, and yet we know that he's a man after God's heart. You know, the sins of David are written larger in the pages of Scripture than almost any other figure. And in more detail. And yet, there he is, a man after God's heart. And so what does that mean? What does that mean about salvation? What does that mean about God's kindness to sinners? What does it mean about David's weakness? And... Um, that's the stuff of many sermons, I think. Any other thoughts? Whoa, hang on. This is exciting. All right, Esther. That's right. That's right. Everybody sins. No one is good. No, not one. And every, doesn't matter how famous you are, you need a savior. You feel inhibited because you're thinking that they're going to be thinking. And, and just remember that, you know, insofar as you do these to the least of me, you've done them to me. It is serving Christ in serving others. It is in giving to others, it is, it is serving Christ and honoring him. And I think that's the way that we have to think about it to overcome those things. This just isn't God observing my kindness and somebody receiving it. It is me actually serving Jesus Christ.
That's good. Yep. Yep. David. All right, she got it. She stole your thunder. All right. Well, praise God. Um, you know, this is a chapter that uh, everybody wants to push forward to chapter 11 and start dealing with David's sins, but chapter 10 has a lot in it that um, prepares us, and 9 and 10 together prepare us for what's coming in 11. And so, anyway, let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that what we have learned here this evening would not uh, be forgotten, but that we would, we would remember to um, do the work of self-examination, Father, that we would, uh, we would love others and we would be loved, that we would accept kindness, that we would accept help, that we would not be proud and in our pride bring... Um, bring our household, bring even kingdoms down. And so, Father, I pray that we would, um, we would be more like Mephibosheth than Hanun, and that we would be also like David, who is like our Savior Jesus, who did all things for the glory of his Father and for our good. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.